Hello, this is Kelly McGee, and today's date is 9-13-2020, and by now I think you know how I feel about um, Hitler and the Third Reich and um, the Khazarians, and um, I think it was those elements, those that mixed together that um, brought about all the evil that we see. So, I wanted to play Hitler's Monsters for you. National Spy Museum. I'm Amanda Olke, Adult Education Director here. I'm very excited to have a program on Hitler's monsters. That sounds bad, but it's true because we have a terrific speaker, Eric Kurlander. He's a professor of history at Stetson University in Florida, and he teaches modern German, European, and world history. Uh, Hitler's Monsters is his latest book. It's his fifth book. He's also the author of Living with Hitler, which sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> Lots of good Halloween jokes with this one. I was intrigued uh, looking around at Eric online. There are lots of interesting, I don't know if you know how much you're tweeted about. No. People are constantly referencing your articles. So it's pretty, pretty fascinating and a very positive, like this is the guy who knows what's going on. So now we're going to know all about it. Nazism and the Occult. Thank you, Eric. Thank you very much, Amanda, for inviting me to uh, Shana as well, and Alden Farrow, the publicist at Yale who set this up. Um, It's a great pleasure to be here. It's my first time in the Spy Museum. Um, which I I, uh, just saw today for for the first time, and it's fantastic. I don't know how many of you have seen the exhibits, but um, there's even a link to what I'm going to be presenting that I didn't know was going to to be there um, in the James Bond exhibit, so I'll mention that later. Oh, you took mine. Yeah. That was a brush pass that shouldn't have happened. Oh, look. You're very good with intelligence. And uh, so... Yeah, and I also, I'm very happy to see a few of my former students in the audience who have obviously done very well and, and are now living in D.C. doing various things, so thanks for coming to my uh, former Stetson colleagues. Um, as you see, this is a title, and I'd like to start, and I'm going to proceed this way tonight, with a little bit from the book, and then um, talk talk through some of the context and then read some other passages rather than uh, give a formal talk. So I'm going to start with the first paragraph of the book. So early in the blockbuster movie Captain America the First Avenger, which many of you have probably seen, a Nazi officer enters a small Norwegian town in search of an ancient relic 
the Tesseract. And you can see the Tesseract in a couple iterations up there. The Tesseract promises its owner infinite power. It's a cosmic artifact of sorts. We soon find out that the officer, Johannes Schmidt, has imbibed the prototype of a super soldier serum developed by a fringe or border scientist, we'll get to that later, named Abraham Erskine. And you see Erskine there in the original 1940 comic book. Intended to give Schmidt superhuman strength and agility, the serum instead, because it's in a prototype form and he shouldn't have taken it, causes a monstrous transformation, driving the Nazi officer mad and turning his head into a ghastly red skull. Hence, the supervillain, one of the first in Marvel comic book history, the Red Skull. Erskine escapes to America, where he perfects his serum, and uh, that happens to the best of us, don't worry, uh, transfiguring the prototypical 98-pound weakling, there you see him, um, Steve Rogers into our hero. Now, Captain America has little time to hone his combat skills before confronting the Red Skull and the insidious occult society known as Hydra, which it turns out pulls the strings behind Hitler in the Third Reich. Kind of an analogy to Spectre uh, downstairs in the James Bond exhibit. Um, now, uh, if you notice, I just wanted to point this out. Baron von Struck Strucker, who's the head of Hydra, um, and he's in the, the second um, uh, Avengers movie, I believe. He's at the beginning of that. Um, that's what it looks like in the Marvel movie. It's very similar to the Vavelsburg, which is Himmler's order castle, where he has grail ceremonies and a black sun, just to show you the fiction and the history coming together. Um, and that's really the point of, of starting with Captain America. Captain America contains all the elements of Nazi supernaturalism in popular culture. The connection to occult forces, mad scientists, fantastical weapons, a superhuman master race, a preoccupation with pagan religions, and magical relics supposed to grant the Nazis unlimited power. And of course, the pagan religion stuff comes back with Thor and Loki fighting over the Tesseract, and Thor, the Nordic god, has to take it from his evil brother Loki um, and bring it to Asgard for protection. Can you all hear me all right? Excellent. So from comic books produced during the Second World War, so while the Nazis are still in power, through 21st century video games like Castle Wolfenstein, from classic science fiction and adventure films like Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Boys from Brazil, to contemporary horror movies like Dead Snow or Hellboy, or superhero franchises like the Avengers and Captain America, our popular culture is awash with these images of the Nazi supernatural, right? Now, we don't have time today, and that's why I decided to kind of focus, to talk about the entire history of Hitler and the occult, right? This book has nine chapters. Um, they all deal with different aspects of what I just kind of laid out there. So what I thought we'd do, and then leave the rest for question and answer, is I'd give you some background on the historical relationship between Nazism, occultism, and what I'm calling border science, or what they call border science. Then 
using some context from the book itself, look at three case studies from one chapter, chapter seven, of the Third Reich utilizing border science and occultism for the purposes of military intelligence and propaganda. That did it, they did actually use it for purposes that this museum uh, would find very interesting, and so I chose those case studies. And then if we have time, I'll bring up a couple, a couple other examples, and then we can, in the question and answer, talk about more expansive things. So for example, um, traditional occultism, kind of these, these doctrines like theosophy, how many of you have heard of theosophy or anthroposophy? Right or Ariosophy, those kind of broader occult doctrines I won't talk about much uh, initially, um, nor will I talk about pagan or folkish religion, though that's a major part of the book. I will focus more on what they called Grenzwissenschaft or, or border science. Um, and so that's what I'd like to do. So let's start with the historical relationship between Nazism and the supernatural. Now, depending on what your background is, you may recognize some of these individuals or writers. Um, and I just want to riff off of this quote from Alfred Rosenberg. Alfred Rosenberg was the ideological czar of the Nazi party. He was the one who wrote long um, essays and, and tomes about what Nazi ideology was, what was wrong with the conventional bourgeois world, the church. And until very recently, people would have characterized Rosenberg and many Nazi leaders, and we'll get to that, as being, I'm talking about mainstream historians, it's, it's very disinterested in the occult, right? And one of the ways I got a contract for the book is after one of the early proposals got a peer review, he said, well, this is all fascinating, but this did nothing. there's no, no history there. I forwarded this quote from Rosenberg himself, and you can see the quote. The success of National Socialism, the unique appearance of the Fuhrer, has no precedent in German history. The consequence is that many Germans, due to their proclivity for the romantic and the mystical, indeed the occult, came to understand the success of National Socialism in this fashion. And he goes on from there. So what is Rosenberg arguing? The reason we were successful is Germans are fascinated by the occult and they associate us with that. Now we'll go on to say that's not necessarily a good thing, but that's a, that's a pretty, if you're looking for an archival source saying there's a story to tell, this is a good one. Um, and he was not alone. So Rosenberg gleaned this. Um, Lota Eisner, who you see up there, Theodore Adorno, both associated with the Frankfurt School of kind of social scientific and cultural criticism in the 1920s, they both argued very uh, openly that Nazism drew on occult thinking, supernatural thinking, esoteric thinking. Um, I have a lot of that uh, in the book. Um, she was a film critic who looked at, like her colleague Siegfried Krakauer, another Frankfurt School film critic. If you heard of the book um, from um, Caligari to Hitler, it's a study of expressionism. Um, anyone, kind of film scholars uh, often cite that book. He and Eisner both argue that the expressionist trend in German culture, the kind of fascination with horror and the macabre and authoritarian personalities paved the way for Hitler. Adorno said occultism, like anti-Semitism, which is based on what seems like a science but's really faith-based religious mystical thinking is exactly what facilitated Nazism. So there's a lot of contemporary intellectuals who made that argument. And then Rudolf von Sobotendorf, who we don't have time, into, time to go into today, he argued uh, 1933 
the Nazis came from his movement, his occult movement, and the Thule Society, which he co-founded. Some of you might have heard of the Thule Society, the Tula Gesellschaft. Um, we've got Rosenberg, and um, we've got Rauschnin, a guy who wrote um, a book about his about interviews he had with Hitler. So there was a very powerful contemporary belief that the Nazis were wrapped up with occult border science and pagan religion. And then you get this first generation of what we call historiography, which is the kind of the interpretations that historians make about the, the past. And some of these are very good scholarly works like Mosa, Stern, and Goodrich Clark's um, The Cult Roots of Nazism which focuses on that one secret Aryan cult, really, the Ariosophis, which I'll talk about briefly today. Others, like um, The Morning of the Magi Magicians, is kind of crypto history, like Trevor Ravencroft's Spear of Destiny. I don't know if you've heard of that as well. Um, but all of a sudden, you get this efflorescence in the 60s and 70s of um, a belief that Nazism is based in the occult, right? Some of it's good history, some of it's not. But all of a sudden, this contemporary idea, after maybe 15 or 20 years of kind of um, incubation, becomes a very popular trope. All right. And then, including uh, a colleague of mine from graduate school, um, some people start researching the occult per se, cultism, esotericism, in the 90s and 2000s, and their arguments are much more skeptical. Um, I would say the general trend in a lot of this work is, first of all, everyone was interested in the occult in the 1890s through 1930s. That's one of the arguments they make. But just as everyone was interested in it, it was also very modern. Um, you know, everyone is trying New Age spirituality and thinks that maybe they have ESP and they're going to, you know parapsychologists to test them and see if they really have it, right? There's still people doing that today. We don't have to get to those analogies yet, but we could uh, later on. And so their argument is why this obsession with Nazism, they call it, when everyone in Central Europe, and even if you read Anne Harrington and others in France and Britain and America were going to their spiritual gurus and trying out new religions. If anything, that just says that there's nothing really uniquely interesting about the relationship between Nazism, occultism, border science, what have you. The problem with this argument, as you'll see in my own book, um, is it, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be a direct connection. That is, not everyone who practices some version of occultism, just like not every Christian supports the same religious doctrine or political party, has to support it for it to be influential right for that way of thinking or those doctrines to be influential so my my work what i'm going to talk about today accepts their premise that everyone was interested in these border sciences and occult ideas that they're not quintessentially backwards but that more than any political party of that era in germany or elsewhere the nazis drew on it while other parties were skeptical or so what does that have to do with social and political you know issues right um so this that kind of gives you a sense of the context in which we'll be, we'll be arguing today. All right. Any questions so far? I want to give you a chance to ask questions about, because I just went through a lot of stuff pretty quickly. Okay. 
We'll save them for the end. Now, a quick case study here before we get to my, or a quick um, example of Nazi anti-occultism, which is in the fifth chapter of my book, um, before we get to the military intelligence and espionage. So one thing that people often bring up is when the Nazis came to power, they attacked occultism. They attacked border scientists. Okay, and I want to talk about what that means, what the differences between border science and occultism. You all understand occult as being into witchcraft and secret forces and clairvoyance, um, dousing, divining, right, with a divining rod. Um, what they called, what scientific occultists called radiesthesia. Um, so I make it, I differentiate in the book between occult doctrines like theosophy, Ariosophy, anthroposophy, right, which are holistic views of the world that incorporate astrology and parapsychology, but also have kind of origin myths, right? Like there were root races, seven root races at some point. Madame Blavatsky uh, started this with the theosophists. And different races had different powers or skills or histories. And then there was some kind of miscegenation or a flood or an ice age. And the, 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 the greatest race kind of started to die out, except maybe some of their high priests made it to Tibet. Um, this is more the religious aspect of the book. Um, but my argument is that that is quintessentially occultism in this area. There's, occultism is kind of an overarching doctrine. Border science are practices by people who sometimes are occultists, but sometimes they're just Nazis, right? Or your local doctor who's a, got a homeopathic background, right? And the idea is these are scientific practices that mainstream science and medicine don't accept, which is why the term border science comes around in the 20s and 30s. Grenz Wissenschaft, it has multiple meanings. And it's not the same thing as occult. The Grenz Wissenschaften are practices that are on the borders of what's accepted by mainstream science. So that's number one in terms of border. They investigate border phenomena, right? So ESP, um, talking to the dead, things that are on the border of what can actually be known. In that sense, they're border sciences, right? Clairvoyance, astrology. And they use the term because they mean interdisciplinarity as well. You cross the borders from one scientific practice to another. So border scientists like to claim that they're not tied to one materialist view or, you know, a very rigid view of what physics is or chemistry is. They're willing to use all doctrines or all practices to come to the truth in some organic way. Why is that important? Because very often the Nazis, as you'll see here, will pursue occultists as individuals who claim to be the head of a sect, like Anthroposophy or Freemasons, but they don't attack the scientific occultism or the border scientists' sciences they practice. Does that make sense? And I think that's a really important distinction that no historians have yet made, because what bothers Nazis is sectarianism that you're not following the Third Reich, the ideology, that Hitler isn't your end-all and be-all. But when it comes to the epistemology, the sources of knowledge, the approaches to knowledge, they don't mind stuff that we would consider a cult, provided it's framed as a border science. 
So to give you an example of that, which is a big deal in the field, maybe um, you haven't heard of this, um, Rudolf Hess was a deputy Fuhrer, right? He was technically in the party, the second ranking guy. He really wasn't. Um, even before 33, Himmler and Goering and others had displaced him. But in theory, he's the, he's the guy who would replace Hitler if Hitler got killed and everyone was trying to kill him, right? He got assassinated. There were like, what, 10 assassination plots that they uncovered or something. Um, Hess, like Himmler, like many of the people we'll talk about today, was very interested in border science and occultism. And it had been practicing it pretty openly. He started a new age hospital for homeopathic and border scientific practices in 34. Um, he would have conferences where he would promote that kind of stuff. Even Hitler sent a letter of congratulations in 35 to one of the big astrological congresses. So a lot of Nazi leaders dabbled or were immersed in this. But Hess was one of the more prominent ones. And in 41... May of 41, as many of you might know, he got frustrated. I mean, it's, com it's complex what his motivations were, but he was clearly frustrated with being marginalized, and he was frustrated that um, Hitler was about to open a second front in the Soviet Union, which he saw as disastrous. For He was, he was right. And so he thought he would go fly because he was a decent pilot. He would go fly to Britain on his own and negotiate peace on behalf of Hitler and Third Reich. Um, so I think on May 8th, um, 1941, he takes off. Now, there is some evidence he did consult with his astrologer, as he and Himmler would do for everything, right, before he left. And then he crash-landed, got captured. The British said, come on, this guy's nuts, um, and just wanted to do a psychological evaluation. They didn't want to negotiate with him. Um, this was a scandal, obviously, in the middle of the war. Hitler was livid. He said, what's wrong with this guy? How could he do it? And then Bormann and Heydrich come in and Rosenberg and say, well, it's because of his occultism, right? He was obsessed with occult gurus, and that's why he did it. So Hitler says, okay, finally, it's been eight years. We've used kid gloves until now, but it's time to go after these people, okay, which is typical of Hitler. Like, he gets focused on something briefly and then loses focus. And for, for about a month, there was something called the Hess Action. You see the wreckage of the plane. You see the order from Heydrich saying that we've got to pursue this. All these occultists, he lists all of them. But it only lasts a few weeks. And I think that's really important. The only reason it only lasts a few weeks and um, I'll get to that here is because what has often been castigated as pseudoscience in the Third Reich might be characterized as a genuine openness to the very boundaries of the knowable, to border science and so-called scientific occultism. That's one of the premises I want to make before we look at our case studies, that the Nazis may have gone after sectarians, but they liked the practices that those sectarians saw as important, the border science. Now, there were limits, of course. Anyone professing a direct connection to the divine or supernatural might raise the state's hackles, particularly if such individuals appeared likely to contravene the state's political or ideological goals. Okay, so Hess embarrasses the Third Reich. They blame astrologers. They go arrest some astrologers. So, or anthroposophists who wanted to have their own institutes. They might, they might go after them. 
At the same time, however, the occult could help justify dubious scientific practices, even as it acted as a wellspring of new thinking and experimentation. And the Second World War saw an efflorescence of such thinking. Okay? So that's the context before we get to military intelligence. Now, in March 1940, Hans Bender, who had become Germany's leading parapsychologist, and there you see a picture of him with Uri Geller from the 70s. He's an older gentleman on the top. But in his 30s, he had become the leading parapsychologist, scientific parapsychologist in Germany. He wrote a pessimistic letter in March of 1940 to Karl Kraft. Karl Kraft is <clears throat> down there. He was a famous Swiss astrologer. Some of you may have heard of him. We'll get to him later. Since 1937, they had both witnessed growing restrictions against occultism. This escalating repression, Hans Bender feared, would be exacerbated by the outbreak of the war because they could see that now that the war had broken out, they were in you know, the euthanasia program, they were going after um, gypsies, uh, the, Jew, the, the policies against the Jews were getting worse. So he's worried that since they're anti-sectarian, they're going to confuse occultism with real scientific, border scientific occultism that he practices, and it's going to get worse for us. Okay? And Croft wrote him back immediately and said, about the prospects of border sciences in our generation, I put the quote up there. Can you read these quotes from that far away? Excellent. He said, I'm not as pessimistic as you, especially in government circles, he insisted. They are seeking people who have something to say in terms of border scientific research. And he used the term, Grenzwissenschaft. Now, Croft knew what he was talking about. By March 1940, Croft was working closely with Goebbels in the propaganda ministry and the Reich intelligence services to produce propaganda and wage psychological warfare against the Allies. Many of Croft's fellow experts in astrology and divining, dowsing, radiesthesia that I mentioned earlier, would be recruited as well. You see Wilhelm Wolf, um, you see um, Wilhelm Wolf, Ludwig Straniak, Gerda Walter. These are some of the figures who would get recruited. Bender's own border scientific research began to receive official sponsorship only during the war. So before the war, he was kind of tolerated. During the war, Himmler and indirectly Hitler start giving money to his university institute, this parapsychologist. For just as the conflict released bottled up economic energies, it also led to a greater Nazi willingness to experiment um, and exploit border science in the interests of foreign policy, propaganda, and military science. Okay, and that's where our case studies come in. For example, Nostradamus and astrology. Now, before September 1939, as I suggested, the Third Reich had been ambivalent about sponsoring um, astrology in any official capacity. So Himmler and Hess had intervened to make sure that astrology per se, the practice of scientific astrology, was not banned. But astrologers and people who belonged to astro astrological societies had been reined in, okay, as had the Catholic Church, the Protestants, 
Jehovah's Witnesses, even radical pan-German nationalists who hadn't joined the Nazi party were reined in. Basically anyone who wasn't in, an, in the Nazi party. That's important to point out. But with the outbreak of the war, any lingering reservations about enlisting border science for the benefit of the regime dissipated. Only four days into the war, Rosenberg, remember Rosenberg, the one critical of occultism? Rosenberg's attack dog in occult matters, a guy named Kurd Kissauer, produced a policy paper, okay? This is a high-ranking official with a policy paper entitled, quote, Astrology as a Means to Influence Public Opinion, unquote. The report indicated that the British had used fake horoscopes to good effect in Germany, Okay, and the, and the SS noted the same thing independently of Rosenberg's office, that Germans really did seem susceptible to this kind of propaganda. If Germans were susceptible to occult thinking, why not employ similar astrological propaganda against the Allies? That was the point of Kissauer's policy paper. Well, while he's thinking about this and while Himmler's collecting all this astrological stuff, Goebbels, of all people, on October 30th, 1939... So eight weeks into the war, reported on a ministerial conference during which he announced in his Reich propaganda ministry that he was examining astrological writing to, quote, determine himself whether there were any inherent dangers, unquote. Two weeks later, he brought a letter from Karl Kraft himself, okay, to Hitler. He got a letter or the, the intelligence service had gotten a letter from Kraft on 2 November. And he brought this letter to a lunch meeting with, with, with Hitler. The letter had predicted that Johann Georg Elzer would attempt to assassinate Hitler shortly thereafter. And there was a guy who tried to kill him when he returned to the Burgerbräu Keller in Munich to give a speech. There was a bomb under there and he barely escaped. So here Croft, this astrologer, just sent a letter predicting an assassination attempt. So Goebbels brings us to lunch with Hitler. He says, isn't this fascinating? And Hitler said um, he was fascinated as well and asked Goebbels to explain the details. When, how did you get this? Who's this Croft guy? Himmler, who was also at lunch and was soliciting astrological materials for his own occult library, okay, took great interest in the conversation and agreed that the letter and its prediction were genuine. So you've got Hitler, 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 Himmler, and Goebbels at lunch saying, you know what, astrology may just work. If we had followed his advice, we would have, you know, you never would have been in there. Goebbels was clearly encouraged by Hitler and Himmler's response. As he reported in his diary two days later, quote, I broached the idea of Nostradamus to my colleagues in the propaganda ministry for the first time. The whole world is full of mystical superstition. Why shouldn't we exploit that in order to undermine the enemy front? So the question here is, does Goebbels really believe it or does he see it as a way of manipulating the public? That's a question that I deal with in the book and I could kind of by case studies show you where I think different Nazis stand. But what's fascinating is the war breaks out and all of a sudden you've got these high-ranking Nazis saying, hey, maybe we should um, work with this astrological stuff. Now, um, in my chapter, I go through in detail month by month how, Hit how Goebbels first has his diplomats in the propaganda ministry try to work with Nostradamus' quatrains.
Um, they don't know anything about astrology, so their propaganda is kind of crappy, right? So then uh, Goebbels says, well, why don't I just hire this Croft guy? Which isn't hard to do because the, the SS and, and, and the SD, the intelligence service, have been monitoring him for a while. Not only because he's an occultist, but because he's been trying to convince diplomats to listen to him because he knows what's going to happen in the war and in the future. Like a, there was a Romanian diplomat, Virgil Talea, um, the whole affair. Basically, he, he tries to tell him what to tell the British and the SS is getting frustrated, but they don't arrest him. Point is, he's on the regime's radar already before he sends the letter. So the girl's like, why don't you come work for me? That's why Croft's so excited a few weeks later and writes Bender. I'm getting paid to read Nostradamus quatrains and tell them what's going to happen. This is fantastic. But it's not just Croft. Um, Goebbels had gone to this guy named Kritzinger, Hans Kritzinger, who was a ballistics, ballistics expert, but also a dousing expert. Because he was a dousing expert, he was an astrology expert. Because these aren't real sciences. You can be an expert on everything, right? Um, and Kritzinger's the guy who said, Croft's really good. You should get him. He's a really good scientific astrologer. Well, um, uh, Goebbels goes back to him and says, do you want to work for me? He's like, well, I'm really busy doing dousing stuff, but maybe you can hire this guy named Georg Lucht, who's also a great uh, astrologer. So by February, he's got Croft, Lucht, and all his kind of leading propaganda guys looking over Nostradamus, finding reasons why Belgium and the Netherlands should capitulate predictably right because in norway why because they invade norway in april and belgium the netherlands in may there's literally you can piece together how goebbels the lead propagandist is using nostradamus to come up with propaganda for why allied countries should capitulate and why german soldiers should be confident that they're going to win okay i'm not going to recount all of that here it's fascinating other than to say that this really happened okay um, I want to move on to our second case study, which is, um, I'll give you the context here, My, or the second, the two case studies which are related. So waging war with border science. On 12 September 1943, the SS captain, Otto Skorzeny, who's downstairs in the James Bond exhibit, uh, the historian for the spy museum has argued that Skorzeny's the model possibly for Blofeld or for one of the other um, Bond villains with a scar. You'll see him in a minute. So this special forces captain, the SS Otto Skorzeny, conducted a daring raid on the Campo Imperatore Hotel in Italy's Gran Zasso Mountains. His mission was to liberate Il Duce, Benito Mussolini, whom the Italian people had deposed and arrested in the wake of the Allied landings in Sicily a couple, couple weeks earlier. Now, for weeks, the Italians had been moving Mussolini from one obscure site to another. The goal was to prevent just this kind of rescue operation. It would have been a real propaganda coup if, if the Axis had gotten Mussolini back and could set up a puppet state right in northern Italy. But somehow, Scorzeni found the dictator's location, and in a matter of hours, his airborne troops swooped in in their DFS-230 gliders and defeated Mussolini's captors without firing a shot. And I'll show you the picture of what we're going to get to that in a minute. Here's the operation I'm talking about, okay? You'll see how they're linked, both of these. Whisked off to Vienna, Mussolini was named leader of the new Italian Social Republic. 
a German-dominated rump state desperate to hold off the Allied advance. But in the midst of Germany's last offensive in the east, Operation Citadel, the disaster at Kursk, all the other things going around, obviously the Sicily invasion, this might have been the greatest and last major military operation that you could deem successful and a great kind of propaganda coup at the same time. We found Mussolini, rescued him, there's hope, right, for the access, access, right? So Operation O constituted one of the Third Reich's last great public relation victories. Nevertheless, the most remarkable aspect of the raid was not Operation Oak, which is a technical term for rescuing Mussolini. It was Operation Mars, the intelligence operation that ostensibly located Mussolini in the first place. Evidence suggests that the information on Mussolini's whereabouts was pieced together by conventional intelligence operations. We'll get to that in a minute. And, and breaking of Allied radio, radio codes. But Himmler and Schellenberg, who had replaced Heydrich as head of the SD, insisted they garnered this information from an expert team of occultists assembled in a villa under SS administration. Now, Operation Mars wasn't the only time that astrologers, clairvoyants, or diviners would be recruited uh, to help the regime. As you can see here, for four years after the Hess action, the SS employed border scientists in military technology and research, seeking ways to improve morale, extract intelligence, and exert mind control. Even the German Navy joined in, assembling a group of diviners and astrologers to locate Allied battleships. So I want to talk about that first, and then we'll get to Operation Mars. Now, after something called world ice theory, which I don't have time to get into today, we can talk about it in the question and answer. The area of border science that was probably most valuable in the Third Reich or most popular wasn't astrology. It was radiesthesia. It was divining or dousing, whether with a stick or a, a piece of, of iron on a string, right? Um, that was seen as the most reliable border science. Many Nazi leaders... Notably, Himmler and Hess believed in the existence of cosmic forces or so-called Earth rays, Erdstrahlen, radiation, that could be detected and harnessed with the proper training. Even Hitler had ordered one of Germany's most famous diviners to check the Reich Chancellery for malignant, malignant forms of death rays that were under the Earth, and we're going to somehow give him cancer. Uh, Hess famously used to sleep with magnets below and above his bed to fend off these, these, these terrible death rays. Goebbels also hired dowsers like Kritzinger, I mentioned him a few minutes ago, to assist with Nostradamus propaganda. But the strangest and most telling experiment in radiesthesia was probably the one initiated not by the Nazi party, which shows you how, how widespread it is, but the Navy itself. So one of the big myths that's been punctured the last 30 years in all sorts of ways is that the military was somehow insulated, like the church, from all this crazy stuff. Well, we now know that leaders of the church, especially Protestants, and leaders of the military were, were almost as immersed, in whether it's race science or border science, in this stuff as the Nazis were, right? And this is an example of that. There's not a, a clear line between the sober, technologically... Um, um, adept and conservative military and the crazy Nazis. There's really a spectrum there that they're all that they're all on.
So by the summer of 1942, the British had begun to turn the tide in the Battle of the Atlantic. As many of you know, the battle between the U-boats were trying to sink as many um, um, convoys as possible to prevent supplies getting to Europe and North Africa, and then using radar, sonar, destroyers, and other things to, to find the U-boats, right? Now, the success of the British and the Americans by late 42 had nothing to do with dousing, okay? To locate enemy submarines, the British employed quite natural scientific methods, namely radar and sonar. They were aided in these efforts by sophisticated code breaking and the extensive use of American convoys. But German Navy officials were confused. They weren't sure how they were eluding them or finding submarines. And one of the most confused uh, about the shift in the Battle of the Atlantic was a U-boat captain named Hans Roeder. And there you see him, Captain Hans Roeder. He's not some guy writing comic books in his spare time, you know, Captain America and whatnot, and sending weird screeds to the government. He is a Navy captain, right? A science expert in the Navy Patent Office and an amateur pendulum dowser, right? Because who isn't in, in Germany at this time? So Roeder was convinced the British were employing dousing, divining, as a means to locate German ships. As a countermeasure, Roeder suggested that the Navy begin employing border scientific methods. So we're really behind, you know, we haven't yet uh, weaponized this stuff. Were Roeder operating in the Royal Navy, his suggestion to set up an officially sponsored Pendulum Institute would likely have been dismissed as out outrageous. And we know the British and Americans had these very some fringe things going on, but they never got any money and it was kind of a joke and, you know, all the efforts were focused on conventional things and massive undertakings like the search for an atomic bomb, right? And yet Roeder was operating in the Third Reich where many ranking party officials and military men were open to border scientific doctrines. Um, and I could go through a lot of examples of things the Navy and Army and Air Force had been experimenting in. I have other examples in the book. But let's just say that given this context, it comes as no surprise that in September 1942, Roeder received approval from the Navy Intelligence Service, so this is official, for his Pendulum Institute. Its purpose was, quote, to pinpoint the position of enemy convoys at sea by means of pendulums and other supernatural devices so that the German submarine flotillas could be certain of sinking them, unquote. As Rear Admiral Gerhard Wagner, chief of the Navy's operational department, admitted, Roeder, the, quote, pendulum user, was well known, to, well known to all of us. From the point of view of those days, his work was not that unusual. After all, one was constantly thinking about new techniques, and if someone came and claimed to be able to achieve something by way of a certain method, no matter how crazy, he doesn't say that, it was a matter, of course, that it was given the opportunity. That's a very official way of saying, yeah, we had no problem with it back then. We, we understand it sounds nuts today. Now that he had gained official approval and financing, Roeder set out convening, and this is a quote from a witness, a strange band of psychics, pendulum users, tatva researchers, astrologers, astronomers, ballisticians, and mathematicians. 
These individuals included the Luftwaffe astronomer slash astrologer Wilhelm Hartmann, Wilhelm Wuf, who would be who was freed from a concentration camp to become Himmler's personal astrologer, and Straniak, Ludwig Straniak. I showed him; he's up there. He was the most famous scientific douser in Germany. He wrote all these books about secret powers that you could find with these dousing rods. Um, he was the first dowser to, to claim he could teach lay people how to employ a pendulum to locate large metal objects hundreds of miles away. Hmm, sounds a lot like enemy ships, right? I wonder why he said he could do that during World War II. Um, Roeder also tapped the prominent astrologers Kritzinger and Kraft. They're still around. The latter recruited directly from prison. I'm not going to get into why Kraft went to prison, but it had nothing to do with occultism. Basically, he was totally... Um, rejecting the Nostradamus uh, orders he was being given and and he went rogue and said you know all these things were going to happen that, that Goebbels didn't like but anyway they take him out of prison throw him in this institute um, Gerda Walter a parapsychologist who had weaved in and out of Heydrich's crosshairs for years um, Gerda Walter used to claim that she would talk to Ernst Rome, the dead head of the SA um, at night he would come to her and they would have these nice conversations about why Hitler killed him. They recruit her to help out, okay? The leaders of the German Society for Scientific Occultism that had been banned, they decide to bring the two guys in, uh, Fritz Kvada and Konrad Schupa. Um, so they're brought in despite the Hess action I mentioned. This is a year after they supposedly were going to wipe out occultism. Now, um, I'm not going to get into all the details again of this institute, except to say that it lasted for a period of months, did absolutely nothing productive, and no one paid any kind of cost for that because it was seen, oh, well, maybe we were faulty in some measurements, but it was a worthwhile operation. In fact, all the occultists, and this is the last case study, that were operating in that realm end up working for the SS a year later to find Mussolini, and that's what I want to close with. So according to a number of Navy officers, the Institute produced no meaningful results. Nevertheless, the Institute indicates the Third Reich, fueled by wartime necessity, had moved into a new, more open phase of border scientific experimentation. The search for Benito Mussolini is emblematic of these continuing efforts. Um, the inspiration for Operation Mars likely grew out of the Pendulum Institute. So very few historians even recognize these things were going on, much less see how they're linked. But it's clear that the Pendulum Institute brought the SS into closer contact with a number of prominent border scientists, including Wil Wilhelm Wolf. Himmler's masseur and confidant Felix Kirsten claims to have facilitated Wolf's rise by soliciting a horoscope of Hitler, which was forwarded to Artur Neba, who is head of the criminal police under the SS. And he thought, well, this is a really good horoscope. So he forwarded that on potentially to Himmler. It's equally likely that Wolf's yeoman work for the Pendulum Institute, Wolf claims that he was able to find these ships, you know, unlike other people, brought him to the attention of Neba, Schellenberg, and eventually Himmler. Whatever the reason, on 28 July 1943, almost a year to the date after the Pendulum Institute opened, Himmler ordered the Gestapo to bring Wolf to Berlin, there he met Neba, who instructed him as to the particulars of his mission. Mussolini had been kidnapped, and Himmler wanted Wolf to locate Il Duce by astrological means. 
Now, Wolf was only the first of many occultists contacted. A few days after Wolf's interview with Neba, so they're giving them interviews to see if they're serious, right? The seer, the clairvoyant, Kurt Munk, was taken out of Sachsenhausen concentration camp where he ended up after the Hess action to Berlin where he was asked to locate Mussolini. So he corroborates this. He's like, they just took me out of the camp and put me in Berlin. This is great. Um, over the next few days, nearly 40 more representatives of the occult sciences were assembled in a comfortable villa in Wannsee, probably Neba's international criminal police headquarters. They didn't know anything about the way that the SS worked, but it seems to be where they were assembled. Upon arrival, many of them demanded and were given copious amounts of food, alcohol, and cigarettes. Schellenberg would in fact complain that, quote, these seances cost us much money as these scientists need good food, drink, and tobacco uh, to be effective. Schellenberg's uh, SS colleague, a guy named Wilhelm Hotel, was more sympathetic to their seemingly Epicurean requests. No wonder that the poor devils, having lived on starvation rations of the concentration camps for years, exploited the opportunity to enjoy honey pots, cigarettes, and alcohol. Like, come on, you know, it's tough in those concentration camps. Why don't we give them uh, some good, the good life for a while? All this food and drink did nothing to dull their preternatural senses. Um, Wolf argued that his own calculations, which took most of August and early September, because he was serious, right, were instrumental in locating Mussolini. So too did Munch, who claimed that the SS produced an ersatz pendulum and a map of Italy on which Munch identified a dead spot in the Abruzzo Mountains. So they're all claiming they found him, right, after the war. Um, most documentation indicates that it was the conventional intelligence of the SD and the SS assisted by the captain of a German seaplane squadron that pieced together Mussolini's location. Years later, so after this has all been deemed crazy, this is very important historically, by the 50s and 60s, a lot of the Nazis and Germans and, and Navy leaders saying, oh yeah, we didn't really believe that, right? So years later, Hotel himself would admit that it was probably conventional intelligence that located Il Duce. The whole operation, he suggested in a memoir, had been organized to placate Himmler, who of course had committed suicide, right? Whose belief in the occult sciences were well known. However, contemporary accounts by Hotel and others tell a different story. So it's interesting to note that Hotel's earliest memoir of the experience, written before the negative post-war connotation associated with the Nazi occult, claimed that the astrologers and dowsers had indeed been successful. So there's a high-ranking SS guy saying, no, it worked. It's clearly the fact that they had occult powers. Equally significant is Schellenberg's account. Now, this is really fascinating because Schellenberg... Uh, the guy over there who replaced Heydrich, he famously would have Wolf come down for a drink to his office and say, so what's Himmler asking you to to research now in the stars? What have you been telling him as a way to kind of figure out what Himmler's next plans were? Because, you know, Himmler would listen to his astrologer, which suggests he was a little bit skeptical. But Schellenberg in his own account, says that the astrologers and diviners somehow located Mussolini despite having, quote, no contact to the outside world, unquote. Scorzeni himself, right, the model for all these Bond villains, supposedly, reported after the war that the SS had relied on, quote, seers and astrologers to glean Mussolini's whereabouts. So at least at the time, they seemed to have thought this stuff worked. 
Such accounts indicate that many Nazis, and not only Himmler, took Operation Mars seriously. So does the fact that Himmler, Neba, and Schellenberg extracted more than 40 occultists from all over Germany, including the concentration camps. You have to understand, during the war, it was very hard to get out of a concentration camp. Usually, when you went in, you stayed into the end of the war, you got killed. The fact that he's, they're taking them out is remarkable. But get this. Move them to a luxurious villa in Vonzay. Himmler even followed through on his promise to grant occultists, quote, their freedom as well as 100,000 Reichsmarks if they were successful. When Munch, remember that guy who was taken out of Sachsenhausen, submitted his petition for release, the camp commander, no doubt nonplussed by the request, like you want to get out of the concentration camp again, um, countered with the option of a cushier position as camp elder. So you can be a capo. I'm not letting you out of the concentration camp. The astrologer insisted on his full release, citing his work on behalf of, quote, the liberation of Mussolini. After the commander contacted the SS leadership, Munch was freed. So either Himmler or Schellenberg said, yeah, he really did help us. you got to let him out. Wolf, Wolf, the guy who was also in a concentration camp and was charging thousands of marks. So it was illegal to exploit people with occult means. That was one of the things the Nazis did pursue that was already in the Weimar Republic. If you were basically telling people whatever they wanted to hear to make money off of them, claiming you had magic powers, you could be arrested or fined. Wolf was doing this all the time. That's why he was initially arrested. But after the Pendulum Institute and the Mussolini thing, Wolf received amnesty and followed up with a request, this is, this is fantastic, that the SS return all his books and other occult materials that the Gestapo had confiscated in the Hess action more than two years earlier. In late 1943, Neba ordered the return of all of Wolf's library, and a few months later, Wolf became Himmler's personal astrologer. Okay? So, um... I don't want to go much further other than to say there's a lot of other examples beyond military intelligence that we just talked about. The use of border science in racial resettlement and Eastern colonization is something we could talk about in the question and answer. Biodynamic agriculture, which comes out of anthroposophy, and settlement in the East. Um, that's another theme um, I thought I'd throw out there. Human experiments in the Holocaust. I argue in the book are directly linked to this kind of thinking and these doctrines. Um, and then finally, miracle weapons, supernatural partisans, and the collapse of the Third Reich. You literally, and I will... Okay, I want you to hear the last of this. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and um, update this, and then we'll play the last. <laughs> 